Good evening, everyone. I'm excited to be sharing with you this evening. And what's even better than that is the uh, beauty that I've witnessed unfolding these last five days as I've watched you with your practice and uh, the way you've shared your hearts and the group and just the unfolding that's been occurring has been really heartwarming for me. And it supported a certain presence that I trust that's in this practice that's there for us and available to us when we sit and invest in our uh, hearts being cultivated in this very particular way. So I thank you for that. We've been well fed this week, <laughs> right? And I'm not talking about the food. I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about the food. I'm talking about the soul food that we've. Uh, <laughs> they did have some fried chicken in there, but no. But you know, I'm talking about the food. That the food is a food. You know what I mean? So. We've been fed well through these practices that are, you know, just really opening our hearts and cracking us open into who we have always been. So it's really a privilege. You know, there's privileges and then there's privilege. <laughs> and this practice is a privilege and it's been a privilege to bear witness to your blossoming and all the, the ways that it's been occurring. So tonight, I'd like to talk about uh, the Bodhisattva's path. And uh, it's a way of talking about how you extend this heart-mind that we've been cooking for these last few days, and for some of you, for many years and lifetimes, right? How we take that back into our lives and make it available. Because, you know, we're not, our spiritual life is not just sitting on the cushion. It's very much being in the world, and it's very relational. So we have some practices in this tradition that can support us in doing that well. So I'd like to start with an example of what a bodhisattva is through a description of someone that we probably all know very well and who might be fresh on our minds because it's uh, the late President Nelson Mandela, contemporary bodhisattva. And you know, this is a man who was an anti-apartheid revolutionary for most of his life. And he died at 95. But the, the qualities of his life, his lived experiences, and the way he touched our hearts is what I want to focus on as the quality of a bodhisattva. So, so his life was his message, and his message was clear. He wanted unity and freedom for all of the peoples of South Africa. He told the courts that I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democracy, free, a de democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if need be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. So that's a powerful position to take in the world. And he was a patient man. Uh, he was a patient man because he spent 27 years in a retreat. <laughs> okay, so the conditions weren't that great, but, but he made the best of it. He went in bitter and he came out better. And he, he says that 
when he was in, in prison that he said, I came out mature. That's what he told somebody in the press. But I see that as a spiritual maturity, as, a, as the qualities of a bodhicitta, a heart-mind that gets so rubbed and, and shined that it, it shines bright on all beings. So he cultivated a bit of right effort and wisdom. His focus was on freedom and unity. That was an anchor for him. And uh, he, he credited his prison experience with teaching him his non-racial outlook and teaching him the tactics and strategies that would make him president. That's how he, you know, just a little bit of maybe some distraction he had in his mind as he <laughs> was on this 27-year retreat, right? And he discovered somewhere along the way that there was no way he could be free if he carried hatred, if hatred was in the mix. So peace became part of the ingredient somewhere along that way. And it made all the difference, not just for him, but for all of us. And he was a stable, kind of steadfast person, and he was aware of his power and impact. He was aware that he was a part of a system and that a lot of people were looking at him and what he did mattered. So that's a big responsibility to carry when people are relying on your every move, <laughs> you know, to, um, to be well, to, to, to have a sense of freedom. He, he actually worked with that pretty well. He seemed to have a sensitivity of his power and his impact and his belonging. And, and he was an ordinary man, in a way, a bit of a pragmatist. And he's, he's, he's quoted as saying, I'm not a saint, but a sinner that keeps on trying. Does that sound like our medit meditation practice? <laughs> and... Um, he showed concern for a lot of people, like he was concerned about real ordinary things like what did you have for breakfast and was your trash picked up today? You know, the basic dignities of where you fed and that you have a healthy environment. And as he aged, he was known for, you know, uh, hanging out with as many children as he could have access to. So this sweetness was, uh, this heart quality of bodhicitta was um, well shared. Now this was a potent uh, symbol for me when I was growing up in the civil rights movement in South Central Los Angeles where there was a lot of violence and a lot of hatred toward black people in my community and a lot of the stuff that was happening in the environment was also happening in the homes. And it, it seemed like there wasn't a place for the heart to be visible and safe. And in fact, I kind of grew up without a language of care and tenderness. It, it, wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a language I was familiar with. And in fact, in my community, it was a little dangerous to be showing your heart all over the place. So to see this man who was working for a whole nation of people and using his heart as part of the mix was, was radical and revolutionary for me, maybe as much as it was for him. So that was a big icon for me of possibility and of the dignity that somewhere in me resonated with and felt that this, this was actually possible in this body, maybe even in this lifetime, to have some experiences with the heart, to have the heart be in the mix. And there were a few years, several years, when I took groups to Africa, 
diversity cultural awareness groups to Africa, South Africa, to, to be with the people and to share stories. And I remember a very powerful story from a woman that headed up at NGO there. And I said, how do you guys do this? Because the parallel thing that was happening in my community was the civil rights movement and all of that. I said, how do you do this? Anyway, this one woman said, she said, the distinction we've made is that we don't hate white people, we hate apartheid. And that was a very powerful discernment that I didn't see necessarily when I was growing up. There was a lot of hatred and just a lot of raw rage about what was happening with people. There wasn't a tool or a way to work with that where the heart was involved at all. But this was a pretty powerful discernment for me to, to hear. It would, it would take several years for it to sink in, but a real powerful insight for me. So Nelson Mandela, through his example, showed me that I had a heart. It was a glimmer of something. It was a heart that needed care and a heart that needed to care for others. So this was a big deal for me. And the Buddha, in his past lives, and prior to his enlightenment, he referred to himself as a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is someone who, like you and me, and like Nelson Mandela, who aspires to cultivate the bodhicitta, this wise heart and mind, for the benefit of all beings. So it's, it's uh, uh, developing this heart so that it is in service to all beings. In Mahayana Buddhism, uh, the Bodhisattva path is the primary path that is followed. And we know people in our lives and in our practice and in our walks of lives that have this kind of uh, bodhisattva, bodhi, this bodhicitta that shines bright. You could probably um, get a few names on the list like the Dalai Lama, right? Thich Nhat Hanh, Pema Shroden, you know, Jonathan Frost, <laughs> <laughs> Pat Coffey, yeah, you know, Hugh, Tara, you know. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, you know, the list can go on. People who touch us with their presence, their, their practice and the cultivation of heart is palpable. It makes you know in an instant that it's possible. The possibilities open wide and the heart is touched just by their presence and their practice. You can feel the bodhicitta shining through. And the bodhisattva, what's important to know is that the Buddha was enlightened. The bodhisattva, the Buddha was awake. The bodhisattva is awakening. So it's not like you're the Buddha. The expectation is not you're all that just yet. You're in practice. We are on a journey of cultivating the heart. It is the aspiration to incline the heart to, to, to goodness. That's what the path is about. So there are bodhisattvas and bodhisattva archetypes uh, everywhere, and some of them are public figures, and some of them are, are in monasteries, and some of them live in your neighborhood. And, <laughs> and uh, even though those bodhisattvas may not be so visible, their practice of cultivating the heart is something that benefits us all. And we're all bodhisattvas in training. What we've been doing these last five days with these teachings and these instructions is cultivating the heart-mind, awakening the compassionate heart. And what we're talking about now is how that becomes available and spills over and shines out to the people that we touch.
Now what distinguishes a bodhisattva from an ordinary person just walking around is intention. It's having an intention. So this intention is subtle because it's a shift from a focus on ourselves and maybe even our self-absorption or being so preoccupied with the world that we're in to a focus on getting that when we're serving other people we're also serving ourselves. That there is there's an expanse of a sense of self that includes all beings. The notion of belonging is cellular, where we're all cells floating around like in this skinless vast body. In the Mahayana tradition the Bodhisattva takes vows and the vows can be pretty mind-blowing things like sentient beings are numberless I vow to liberate them when I first heard that I said all of them <laughs> delusions are inexhaustible I vow to transcend them Dharma teachings are boundless I vow to master them the Buddha's enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So that's, that's a big kind of undertaking and it's not undertaken as if every single being I meet is going to be gifted with me being able to, you know, get them awake and enlightened. But it's through the quality of our own practice that we offer this uh, up and out. The bodhisattvas live by the practices of the paramis, those principles of generosity, ethics, patience, effort, concentration, and wisdom. And we too live by vows and principles, except most of the time we're not conscious of them. We're not always consciously uh, making them uh, explicit. I believe that early on we kind of know why we're here and then we forget. It kind of gets covered up with our conditioning. So this Buddha nature uh, has it's typically been flirting with us for a long time and then we find ourselves sitting on the retreat kind of here practicing together so we all have a story of how we stepped into the to the Dharma that might have some information in it about what our intention is or what our vow is even though it hasn't been articulated for example for as, as long as I can remember matters of the heart or matters of concern in my life for as long as I remember, can remember. When I was really young I was you know a crybaby because I had this really tender heart and you know and I was getting all of my, I come from a family of eight so I was getting all my siblings in trouble because I would cry and then they'd have to defend me and so I got you know I got into a lot of trouble and there was a lot of harshness and uh, so there was tender there was a tender heart when I was really young and in my teens I was a pregnant mom and I was also living with an undiagnosed uh, hyperthyroid so I was out of whack chemically and I was causing tremendous havoc at that time in my life and at that time it was heart on fire and that was uh, a really really difficult time but I was aware of the heart just being in a blaze all the time and in my 20s I had open heart surgery for a mitral valve pro prolapse so you know the heart just said you know I'm just done with this already you know and what I discovered is that it was uh, surgical procedure but it was the beginning of a spiritual awakening because I was shocked back in the body I had been running from up until that time 
So it was a heart homecoming. And in my 30s, I came out. Came out as a lesbian. And then it was like the heart was expanded. This notion of how you define yourself and in this little box and who you love, that was just not happening. So there was this expanse and formlessness around the heart that was very right on for me. And then in my 30s, when I got a little bit more regulated with my health, I started to relax into my body and became interested in yoga. And that's when I started to notice that it was possible to relax. And I took uh, a class and had a dream. You know, it's like Martin Luther King, right? My last name is King, too, so I had a dream. I'm sitting in this, uh, you know, it's this big, fat guy sitting on this flower in the middle of the lake, you know, with my face on it, you know, very peaceful and content. And there's this storm happening, everything attacking this figure. And what was interesting about it is that all of the attacks had people's faces on it that I knew, you know, the lightning and the ice storm. And it's like, wow. But what was most powerful about the dream was that I was able to stay in that seat and I was not disturbed by it. And that was amazing, an amazing experience. And it would take 10 years before I could recognize and become aware of the symbolism of that being my Buddha nature sitting on the lotus flower dancing with Mara. But that would be 10 years later after I looked Jack Cornfield in the eye and fell in love with the peace that he was radiating out. Once again, Bodhicitta. And I could see that I could rest there. And my heart once again was touched and opened wide open. So matters of heart has, have always been matters of concern, has always been the invocation to get me in alignment. And it led to an intention of doing no harm and serving through my own example around matters of the heart. So it's fascinating to me that I'm learning in, about the Dharma and practicing. So it's useful to reflect on your life and not to, re to look back in order to recognize the way your Buddha nature has been flirting with you and also to recognize who you've always been, who you've always been. So I invite you to do a reflection with me. Take a moment, if you would, and close your eyes. And you can take a couple of breaths here. And I'll invite you to think about a few questions, but it's not about answering them. It's just planting some seeds for your consideration. Consider, for as long as you can remember, what have you been curious about or interested about? What has felt true or important to you for as long as you can remember. A second question. If your life were your message, what would the message be? If you were on your deathbed and could offer your heartfelt wisdom for our well-being, what would that be?
Notice how you're feeling on the inside as you consider these questions. And if you were to just kind of play with an intention that you would set for yourself in terms of a life theme or inquiry, something that would affirm the truth of who you've always been, your heart quality perhaps, what would that be? Just open your eyes again. So these reflections guide us to an understanding of what's important and it helps us begin to shape an intention for ourselves that uh, serves as an anchor, a guide, just like the breath, just like each step, just like a sound our intention can be a way that we wake up and realign to what's true for us. And when we practice becoming a part, uh, when we bring this intention into our awareness practice, we become our own guide, our own authority. We have a way to hold ourselves accountable. So it's not like the joke I heard recently where the couple was standing in the closet with each other and one leans over to the other and says, okay, I've decided to clean up my life starting with your stuff. It's not that kind of intention. <laughs> it's an intention that has a bit more roots than that. Another quality of the Bodhisattva is that they use every obstacle in their life as an opportunity to cultivate bodhicitta. So they have a particular commitment to working with dukkha. And it's not for their benefit, it's for the benefit of all beings. So this bodhicitta, I'd like to talk a little bit more about it. You know, Tara spoke last night, uh, the other night, so beautifully about the qualities of this loving presence. And um, it really is uh, something that I consider to be more like an atmosphere. It's like an air quality that colors our consciousness and holds whatever arises in kindness. So when bodhicitta becomes an aspiration for us, what we're doing is we're cultivating qualities like tenderness, empathy, flexibility, kindness, generosity, gratitude, curiosity. She named those so beautifully for us the other night. And that's what this quality of presence is, is like. It, it feels, uh, it, it's, it's a felt sense. And at the same time, uh, we, can, we, we, we hold this space and then uh, we, we, if we're not careful, we'll think that's the only thing that happens, that we should just have this bodhicitta love fest for the rest of our lives. But inevitably, uh, dukkha kind of comes in. Gloria Steinem says it well when she says, the truth will set you free, but it will first piss you off. <laughs> so. So one of the things we can do with starting to work with the fact that dukkha is, is one of the three marks of existence, it's like impermanence, it's going to be a part of the mix. One of the way we, ways we can start to work with this is to set some intentions for ourselves. We've talked about intentions, but this is, a, this is in addition to that. So 
we can begin to look at holding a t an intention in our lives when we go out into the world of doing no harm. Imagine that. What if doing no harm, you know, with harming anything was no longer an option on all levels? When we hold a non-harming attitude, it allows people to feel safe. And those of us that might be tender-hearted or the crybabies or unfold a little slower than the 15 minutes you might have on your watch have a chance to kind of come out of hiding. And you can do the same thing with a non-harming attitude towards yourself. So the idea is to stop the war and to calm down the mind. As, a, as an ongoing practice. We want to calm down the emotions that we know make matters worse. We don't want to escalate the suffering that presents itself. We want to notice it and, if anything, interrupt the habitual current of it by infusing it with a quality of presence. Jonathan last night was so eloquent when he talked about uh, the strategies we could use and this sense of intimacy with his experience when he talked about uh, uh, being up close with his illness. So this sense of calmness towards is helpful when we're holding a non-harming attitude or intention. Tidnet Han said that when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person stayed calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So the practice of non-harming could be the practice that uh, Pat talked about this limbic love, pausing, and being with what is in a loving way. And Tara gave us that beautiful threefold approach of leaving the fortress of thought, entering the wilderness of the body, and feeling with love. That's bodhicitta. So imagine greeting the dukkha that arises with a non-harming mindset and with this quality of bodhicitta. When the press asked Nelson Mandela about the tension he was having with the Zulu leader, his response was, the solution is to love him into acquiescence. And the Buddha said, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone. But you are the one getting burned. So it's a beautiful intention to, to have for yourself an awareness practice of practicing no harm. And it's useful in conflicts. So I have another reflection for you. And I'd like for you to close your eyes once again. And maybe you can take a moment and reflect on a conflict in your life with a person, maybe something recent or fresh. And be specific about the person. Bring them into your mind's eye. And taking your time, imagine all the details of the exchange that you have with them. Recall the words that were spoken and the tone of voice, 
and see how that feels in the body. And then freeze frame that scene, that tension scene, that intense scene. Freeze, freeze frame it. And imagine that you're floating up to the ceiling, meeting with the Buddha or some other enlightened figure. And you agree to remain at the ceiling while the Buddha enters your body and speaks with your voice and returns to the scene. And we allow the scene to continue, so unfreeze the frame and observe what the Buddha does, what's said using your voice, using your body, using your gestures. Observe what's happening. And now the Buddha joins you on the ceiling again and offers you a word or two of advice. What does he say to you? And with your next breath, you can just slowly come back. When our Buddha nature kicks in, it's, it's almost similar to when we catch ourselves in, in meditation and we notice we're off thinking and then it's that moment where we notice ah I've been thinking and we bring ourselves back it's that same quality of going to the ceiling and getting a bit of awareness and then coming back to your alignment so what the Buddha may have offered is bodhicitta the wise heart to respond in a way that was kind. And there's one more thing to say about the Bodhisattva path, and that is that the Bodhisattva aspires to live in ways that opens his or her heart to the world. And that a lot of the transformation and the heart cultivation, the bodhicitta, is cultivated through service. Our acts and gestures, extension in the world. I like what Martin Luther King says. He says, the new militancy is when we understand that we don't create the very thing that was done to us. So our way of giving in the world is actually giving in ways that incline the atmosphere of bodhicitta that, that opens this ability for the heart to be, the atmosphere to be full of the wise heart. Thet Han says to us that we are children of society, but we are also mothers. We must, we must nourish society. 
And so society needs our bodhicitta. It needs this heart quality that we have been cultivating. And there are many ways to extend this care in our communities. There's more need than, than I could even name tonight. But it is the intention we set in that earlier reflection that will help us uh, place our uh, offering in the right place for that extension to help. So there's the gateway of social, our social and political world is, is, is just nuts right now, what's happening in the world. So, you know, you could spend a few lifetimes there helping, offering bodhicitta to, to support that world. There's so much to be done, so much uh, suffering there that our heart can extend to. Cornel West said that, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. So that could be a place. The environment, our planet is rebelling. The global warming, the heartbreak. Hey, you know, I've, I've become more and more curious and I'm educating myself on climate, uh, global warming issues. And it's amazing to see that some of the same rebellion that the earth is doing is very similar to, you know, what uh, any people, any group of people or any religion that, that feels a sense of oppression or anybody that feels a sense of oppression can relate in some ways to the uh, accumulative effect that then has an effect on our on our atmosphere our air quality and bodhicitta is needed there and there are also peace and uh, initiatives and visionary initiatives that are going on. We only need to turn on, uh, Google it. Everything is Googled now. And you can see that there's an influx of places where there's great creativity and vision going on. One group in particular, the Institute for the Future, I read about recently is very impressive with some of their projects. IMCW has a number of projects that are engaged in the community, places where our bodhicitta can be used. And there are also opportunities to express and extend your bodhicitta in, uh, in an artistic way, through music or singing or writing or poetry. And there's not nearly enough dancing going on in the world. <laughs> so we do live in these bodies, you know. So just seeing where the heart naturally wants to flow. And of course, it's so important to maintain our practice as a way of service. When we come on retreat together like this, we're offering bodhicitta and supporting each other's practice. And we don't want to get too caught up on this service piece because sometimes we can fall right into that place of shoulds and oh, I should be doing this, or... So you don't want to go there. Jonathan talked to us last night about right effort and seeing if you can stay in that middle path of uh, walking and being in the world. And Howard Thurman says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs are people who have come alive. And we've been cultivating this alive heart this week. So it reminds me of this song that came up, and some of you might know it because you're, you're in your 60s like I am, but back in 1970, there was this group in Watts, California called Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. 
AKA contemporary bodhisattvas. So they had this, uh, they did this song called Express Yourself. Do you remember Express Yourself? So it's like, so sing it with me. Let's get the groove going here. Express yourself. Dun, da 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 dun, dun, da da dun, da 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 Express yourself. Dun, da da dun, 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 dun. Whatever you do, 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 do it good. Okay, so here's the best part. So listen closely. It's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you're doing what you look like you're doing. Express yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. That takes me back there. So for our last expression for tonight, not, I'm not going to have you get up and sing, but I do want you to close your eyes one more time. And take a breath and see if you can ta tap into, maybe there's a bit of joy bubbling in you right now, just from this silliness and lightheartedness. That's bodhicitta also. So take a breath and just feel what's there. And consider this question. What do you feel called to do? What do you feel called to serve? Where? Where do you feel called to serve? And what imprint would you like to leave on the world? can open your eyes. Again, it's not meant for you to have the answers, but to consider the questions. And also, consider um, service as, as a legacy, as planting karmic seeds and seeds. And think about, think about, reflect on your life often. Think about how you want to be remembered and see if it, if it lines up with your intention, that anchor. Maya Angelou offered a testimony to Nelson Mandela, and she could have easily been talking about the Buddha. And this is what she said. She said, I will remember your generosity and heart. Thank you for coming. We will not forget that you lived among us, that you taught us, and that you loved us. So in closing, I just want to say that uh, to live the, the spirit of a bodhisattva is to touch into our Buddha nature and have it shine bright we touch into our Buddha nature, we're touching into this quality of bodhicitta. And it's an indiscriminate shine. It's like the high noon sun. It touches everything. That's how we're all in this together. Nelson Mandela says that what counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. It is what difference we have made in the life of others. That's the Bodhisattva path. And the Buddha says that in the end, these things matter most. How well did you love? How fully did you live? And how deeply did you let go?
And the Buddha says there's only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth. Not going all the way and not starting. So let's sit for a few minutes with this reflection. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.